America's Response to Existential Fear, an essay regarding America's potential for extreme rationalization by R. W. Murphy. The Extreme Syndrome There is indeed a profound fear abroad in the United States. It can be sensed by the most casual observer of social discussions when certain triggering topics are raised. It is, in fact, not just one fear, but a group of fears that in their totality forms a syndrome which transcends a great number of metrics and epidemiological methods, which we would otherwise normally use to define, inoculate, treat, and cure virulent strains. This is also a rapidly morphing and mutating syndrome that is capable of changing transmission vectors in a moment's notice, as the underlying perceptual fears shift in both form and amplitude. All that being said, it is not unique to the United States, nor is it emerging for the first time. Primal fears have been the basis for many historical events throughout the world. Throughout time, the commonality has been an overwhelming feeling of disenfranchisement and helplessness, which has then led to extremism of various sorts to quell those fears, when the existing socio-political economic defense structures have been perceived as inadequate. That is the key, perception. It's not that the cultural structures are in fact inadequate, but only that a vague and undefinable critical mass of the culture believes it to be so. A default to extremism has seldom required a plurality over the millennia, nor does it today. Of course, given our most recent horrific events, most would conclude at this point that the subject of this essay has its foundation in the extremism of terrorism that has been exported from places where radical Islam is tolerated and even nurtured. However, it's quite the opposite. The thesis here is that a tacitly morally justified and government-sanctioned form of extremism is not only possible but likely probable in the United States in the not-so-distant future. Is not the ten guys with AK-47s in a backwoods Tennessee landfill planking off rounds, using well-trodden cultural slant racial slurs, and swearing allegiance to a loosely defined militia system? It is an entire nation beset by the fears and feelings of helplessness that have stoked the fires of extremism throughout the world so many times. No threat to the United States has ever been met with hopelessness, no matter which dark hour you might choose to ponder. Yet, we as a people approach that reality today. The syndrome, which we would like to ascribe as only affecting others, has indeed reached observable domestic proportions. Without question, the greatest fears are in regard to how Islamic terrorism might affect the U.S. inside our borders, and how anemic our efforts to date have been relative to identifying a long-range solution. An announcement by ISIS in mid-March 2016 that it has trained and deployed between 400 and 600 extremists to act as 
Independent Decentralized Jihadist Cells, IDJC, with the autonomy to attack soft targets with minimal advanced planning and or centralized organizational coordination, causes many to ponder the actual risk posture of the thousands of soft targets across the United States. We have significantly beefed up our post-9-11 homeland security, yet clearly a worst-case scenario can be conjured up where the multiple targets are attacked simultaneously and the resultant death toll far surpasses the Twin Towers' horror. It is important to note that the pondering mentioned here is both at the grassroots level of cigar shop pontifications of graying men and at institutional levels in Washington, D.C. It may also fuel the virtual political suicide of a major party whose voters seem to be saying they want change for change's sake with the full knowledge that they are embracing the early institutional leanings that have common elements with some of the most extreme regimes of the 20th and 21st centuries. It reflects the feeling of hopelessness noted above, as well as the associated conclusion by more than just the fringe that global war with Islam is inevitable. Not a tidy little small war of drones and surgical strikes in limited geographical space, but a general war akin to World War II, spanning the continents with hundreds of thousands of boots on the ground. It may be a war that is not meant to be genocide, in that the intent is to defeat the enemy, not destroy the faith. However, how to accomplish the former without approaching the latter is problematic at best. It will also be a war where the niceties of collateral damage and civilian casualty concerns will be bypassed in response to the exigencies of unlimited war. It will be based on a moral imperative, just as it was during the bombing of non-military targets during World War II, where relatively limited human cost had to be balanced against global victory. It is the potential virulence of all these perceptions that further fuels the syndrome across vectors one would not have thought possible only a few years ago. Even the cautious now speak of the inevitable. It is clearly a continuum of opinions and advice that is indeed broad. However, the entire distribution has also, quite clearly, shifted significantly in the direction of general war. It may be almost imperceptible, but it is also inarguable. Only the tail is ready to immediately take up arms and begin the worldwide battle. However, the shape of the curve and the components of the syndrome change every time a significant terrorist event occurs. Even when the death toll is nominal, fear is further stoked and feelings of hopelessness reinforced. U.S. extremism in the form of global war seems more likely and more justifiable to more people each time. When history repeats, one only needs to look to the end of the Weimar Republic in Germany and to the dynamics which led to the rise of National Socialism to see parallels with recent political dynamics in the United States. The Nazi Party was hardly held in high esteem by the broad German population or its government 
1933. There had been, in fact, many attempts to limit its political power. Hitler was not a charismatic leader with a mandate from the people. He was nothing more than an accommodation. When it became obvious that the Reichstag could not be governed by either a single party or by a coalition, the Nazis held the highest numbers, but not a majority. Yet they refused any alternative other than a unilateral chancellorship going to Hitler. All other attempts to form a government failing, and no alternatives being available to President Hindenburg, when Chancellor von Schleicher resigned, Hindenburg was forced to offer the chancellorship to Hitler as leader of the largest party. Knowing full well his intent to form an internal puppet government with weak ministers from other minority parties, Nazism as the only party, and his own ultimate dictatorship were his clear ambitions. Although the Nazis continued to have significant political success, not making up a majority, they required the votes of other like-minded minority parties right up to the capstone of treachery, the enabling bill, which for all intents and purposes eliminated the Weimar Republic's constitution. It installed a fascist process with the government responsible to nobody other than the dictator at its head. It ruled without oversight and was capable of issuing laws without underlying legislation. The transition from ambitious chancellor to unrestrained dictator had become complete. So why is the 1930s rise of fascism in Germany pertinent to the expanding extremism syndrome in the United States today? There is no single answer. However, three key elements can be put in juxtaposition. The first, of course, was the fear of the German people that the post-World War II Weimar government had become incapable of governing, especially fiscally and less so militarily. Vague fears and angst were at an all-time high, and targeting the perceived causes had become politically expedient. For instance, the Jews, not only by the National Socialist, but by other minority parties as well. That in turn led to a wholesale abdication of responsibility by those that could have otherwise balanced Hitler's excesses. Lastly, as with all politics in like cases, the power void was filled by the party which played most greatly to the base instincts of the populace and best allayed its fears, the morality of its methods notwithstanding. Other comparisons to Nazism can be made too. For instance, as early as the mid-1930s, the purification of philosophy was a key element of the activity of the brown shirts and later morphed into the most disgusting crimes of the SS and Gestapo. Moderation, that is to say, free thinking and divergence from centralized policy, was deemed an adulteration of loyalty to the fatherland and was punished mercilessly. Do we see a similar aspersion of moderation today in the United States? Have the narrow vested interest of a few and the belief in a single transcendent political system transcended the broad interests of the majority? Have the underlying political processes been hijacked? Has a political discourse become so coarse and so polarized 
that is hardly recognizable as a democratic process. Most importantly, as in 1930s Germany, as the American public acquiesced to the public stridency of the new real politic. The critical question to be answered is, are Americans willing to ignore the damage to their frail young republic that radical polarization brings when moderation is forced out of our political dialogue? Although the above emphasizes fascism, it should clearly be noted that Soviet communism was only fascism in disguise. The primary difference being only that communism evolved as dictatorship by committee. In 1917, Lenin actually sought the highest form of democracy via the direct rule of the local Soviets by the people, albeit with rigid socialistic philosophical underpinnings. A different economic model, yes, but still democratic in terms of the transcendence of decentralized versus centralized power. However, over time, the same dynamics as in post-Weimar Germany emerged in the Soviet Union. Fear of the post-Tsarist system, the rule of a single strong political system, and the rule of personality became the accepted norms. Centralized government economic planning via the Politburo emerged. A cult of personalities, as exemplified by leaders such as Stalin, replaced local Soviet decisions with fiats. Moderation was ruthlessly snuffed out, not just by political policy, but also by purges that left thousands of comrades dead. Of course, it can be argued that communism differs from German fascism in that its genesis was in the free will of those who revolted in Russia, and as such, power was not imposed or usurped. However, by the mid-1950s, with Soviet dictatorial power well-established and the will of the people largely ignored, it became a fallacious argument at best. Gone was any form of moderation. The existence of government was justified solely by the existence of government, the most precise definition of fascism that can be found. The people's voice had been long lost. Leading Indicators of Extremism Lest this essay become a historical saga more than an argument for the probable emergence of United States extremism, let the above comments on Nazism and Communism be only the framework that shows the dynamics that are capable of supporting extremism in a developed society. Neither Germany nor Russia were inherently radical in their political philosophies prior to the emergence of fascism and unrestrained socialism, respectively. In fact, both have been monarchies as recently as the early 1900s. An inept Weimar and war-damaged government in the case of Germany provided Nazism. An inept emperor attempting too little too late in terms of crude reform of the Russian parliamentary system preceded communism. In the latter case, class distinction and wide economic disparity had also reached a tipping point, but overall, the degree of eventual radicalization of either government could hardly have been foreseen. In both cases, however, the populace had lost complete faith in the system, 
and we're ready for change, any change. Now you may begin to hear the echoes of Politico Americanus. If the squashing of moderation is a leading indicator of extremism to come, then America should indeed be wary. If a growing income gap and increasingly skewed distribution of national assets points to the permanence of an institutionalized form of class system, concern should also rise significantly. If long-held cherished ideals of the majority are pushed aside by the perceived rights of various minorities, the resultant backlash of the majority should not be unexpected. If the founding bedrock of the republic is perceived to be crumbling, that is to say, a perceived strong Christian ethic, surging minority sect intolerance is not an improbable consequence. If the government fails to govern, then the any change acceptance of the people should eventually be expected. In fact, the future tipping point is brought back closer to real time with every perceived crisis of which the American people can currently point to many, whether real or imagined. In the aggregate, no fixes by elected governments of repeated perceived threats makes a ready catalyst for the acceptance of extreme actions. U.S. Religious History as the Basis for Extremism A Digression The Christian ethic issue deserves more discussion. Most perceive the U.S. Constitution as guaranteeing unrestricted freedom of worship through the liberal philosophical intercessions of the Founding Fathers and the First Amendment. However, the truth might be more mundane. There were two primary Protestant faiths in America when the First Amendment was adopted. There were only minuscule congregations of Catholic, Jewish, Mormon, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, and other non-Protestant religions present in the very early years of U.S. history. The significant migration of those sects came later. In fact, the religious protection wording of the First Amendment was actually meant to buffer the two prevailing Protestant religions against one another. That is to say, the Church of England and the Presbyterians. Following the Revolutionary War, they each had their geographic centers of power and their associated religiously dominant institutions of higher learning. Neither trusted the other to not set out to dominate the new political landscape and thus were protections installed in the Constitution. Clearly, the real politic of 1791 America was not quite as enlightened as some today might have a person believe. Let there be no doubt, America was formed as a Protestant Christian country, and over more than two centuries has opened its arms tolerantly. It was hardly a philosophically enlightened venture designed to take all comers, Thus, it is when the bedrock is perceived to be eroding and the religious ideals of the majority to be existentially threatened that U.S. extremism can be rationalized by some. In the case of Muslims, there are many Americans in the present day who perceive the entire religious population as a threatening, invading force. Notwithstanding the fact that only a small percentage of the whole have proven to be dangerous to date. It results from the fear syndrome discussed above. When there is no precise target to shoot at, shoot at anything that might be a threat. 
the conflicts and challenges of each of the two dominant Protestant religions attempting to become a state religion actually predate the First Amendment. In 1777, Thomas Jefferson felt compelled to submit to the Virginia General Assembly the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom Bill due to the undue pressure being applied by the Church of England to be the sole and compulsory religion of Virginia. It was enacted in 1786, only four years before the enactment of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The latter's drafters ultimately looked to it as precedent. In it, Jefferson guaranteed to all Virginians, regardless of religion, tolerance and a right to worship as they pleased. Lastly, it should also be noted that Jefferson also made a clear argument for the separation of church and state. That thinking, too, was eventually indirectly made part of the First Amendment and the Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses thereto. Yet, none of the above was enlightened action per se, no matter how much it might appear so today. It was merely the infighting of a nation bound so tightly to a Christian ethic that its dominant sects were willing to almost devour themselves to become the single state religion as were frequently found throughout most of Europe at that time. Jefferson did not intercede as a deeply devout religionist. He interceded as a political pragmatist with deeply felt Christian ideals. For the most part, he eschewed organized religion himself and looked to a more direct relationship with his maker. Clearly, our more recent interpretations of tolerance and expectations of a constitutionally protected, religiously fluid American sectarian plutocracy were never contemplated by the founders before the Jeffersonian model. The prevailing underlying understanding was that minorities could worship as they wished, but they would indeed remain insignificant minorities at most. All the above provides fertile ground for those who today might want to argue for extremism to protect the original true intent of the founders and this country's initial religious homogeneity. Hunting the American Rhino To accept extremism, a large, relatively open population must first have homogeneity of thought. Otherwise, the counterbalancing opinions will invariably raise the anti-extreme arguments and mitigate the radical polarization required to support it. Along with homogeneity, those who seek extremism also attempt to tag the anti-extreme elements as reactionary. That is, reactionary in that anti-extreme partisans cannot see the true way and rely on insupportable positions not in the best interest of Americans or at least the extremists see it that way. Not all who espouse the true way are devotees of extremism, but virtually all extremists seem to know their own true way. As a longtime registered member of the Republican political party, the author finds it incredibly offensive to be called a rhino or Republican and name only by a fellow Republican. It is as if those leveling that criticism believe their level of republicanism is more true to the cause. It is a step in the direction of quashing of moderation noted above. 
It is a step towards homogeneity of thought. It is a comment on reactionary thinking by those that use it. The implication is made that a so-called rhino is a shallow thinker who just cannot see the true way with the same clarity as their more zealous Republican critic. Although much of that anti-rhino rhetoric is meant to justify ultra-conservative positions not embraced by all Republicans, and not extremism per se, it remains that it does indeed provide the philosophical underpinnings that could easily support more nefarious objectives. Pressure to groupthink, pressure to not be a free thinker, ridicule of those who speak out as unpatriotic or uninformed. These are all required elements for society to ultimately rationalize excess in a relatively amoral atmosphere, where many persons' positions are actually formed by others and then imposed, morals dictated and not independently formed. Going back to Russia and Germany for a moment, there should be echoes. Those who are so quick to use the term rhino are often no better informed of the true way. In fact, there is a certain counterintuitiveness in that those who use the pejorative do more damage to the integrity of the party than the free thinking that they seek to squash. They run the vitality and breadth of the party into the dirt, leaving only a rustling hulk of earlier democratic leadership. Yet, the individual rhinosayers, also called Afros for American for right-wingers only, are actually only one leg of a three-legged stool when it comes to the same issues. The Tea Party experiment is another leg, which has also truly damaged the party's integrity. Quote, Think like us, or we will run you out of politics, close quote, should be the slogan of this loosely affiliated group. Teaming up to beat moderate fellow Republican candidates in re-election battles has been the modus operandi. Again, the Tea Partiers are not bent on extremism per se, only a type of hyper-conservatism. Note bene, while requiring an absolute commitment to a far-right manifesto even more polarizing than that of their more benign ultra-conservative cousins. Even if currently dormant, like the rhinosayers, the underlying requirement for homogeneousness within the Tea Party should be troubling as an ingredient required for future U.S. extremism. Lastly is a group just in it for the money, but who, in their own way, also provide those dangerous underpinnings. These are the talking heads of so-called conservative radio and cable TV. They are the self-professed pundits who have found extreme rhetoric to be a valuable asset. All the elements are there. A requirement for homogeneity of thought, open ridicule of those who don't think the same, an allusion to the one true way, etc. They also project one additional element, hate. They might each vehemently deny it, but the vitriol and their daily rants cannot be mistaken as anything else. They might brush it off as nothing more than their on-air talent or style. Disingenuousism never had a better bed partner. These personalities, for they really can be called nothing more based on their respective personal political accomplishments, 
may in fact actually be the most dangerous of all because they induce a low-level brainwashing of the masses in terms of what is morally appropriate to say and do. Hate speech, disguised as aggressive political criticism, has become an acceptable behavior for many. It exposes thousands of listeners to a form of extremism every day when issues, causes, and solutions are expressed in the absolute terms of a single true way instead of within the framework of reasoned, moderate compromise that seeks out an optimum result for all of America. Extreme broadcast rhetoric desensitizes listeners and causes them to set up a degree of counter-reality in terms of what they begin to perceive as actual, socially accepted limits. Daily, that perceived counter-reality is reinforced until certain listeners shift from unaware dupes to zealots. When coupled with the other elements discussed above, it is but a small step to the rationalization of extreme acts. Of course, such an indictment of conservative media could set off a diatribe on its own. It would be within character and not unexpected. Nor would it be any less dangerous. Again, think of the insidious propaganda programs of Berlin and Moscow, which were designed solely to shift perception, regime loyalty, and moral limits. Think of how such a program was shrouded in grandiosity at the Berlin Olympic Stadium and made to appear as the new normal. The people of the United States are hardly more immune to a similar bombardment of the senses where they are forced to sift through the true and the false every single day. A distorted reality becomes almost inevitable. That distortion is an excellent petri dish for future extreme acts. Acceptance of extremism, the visceral reaction coming from a conservative cohort. A portion of the thesis of this essay is that there is indeed fear widely abroad in the United States in 2016. It is virtually inarguable. Hardly a day passes when news of death and mayhem does not affect each of us viscerally. It comes at us from every form of media with its images of suicide bombs and bloodshed, kidnappings, assassinations, beheadings, hijackings, child soldiers, non-state wars, use of low-level weapons of mass destruction, such as poison gas, terrorism training, terrorism financing, tacit state support of terror, and threatening rhetoric. Social media has also been infiltrated and used as a conduit for the hate messaging and jihadist recruitment objectives. To say that these things don't actually scare the American public would be disingenuous. It may be only a toehold, but short of another 9-11 here, the terrorists appear to be accomplishing their goals. That is a profound statement in and by itself. The post-World War II psyches of no less than three generations of Americans are being transformed. The transformation is defensive in nature in response to the fears. However, the fight-or-flight decision appears to be rapidly tipping towards fight. In fact, that tipping point 
may have already been reached, and the question now is more of mechanics than morality. An informal group of 10 to 12 of my colleagues gather frequently and enjoy robustly discussing the issues of the day. The makeup of the group changes from day to day, but the average size is three to five people. The cohort is primarily comprised of men. It is a right-leaning group to be sure. Ages span across all adult generations. Incomes range from those on paltry, retired fixed incomes to very wealthy professionals. There's a 50-50 split between Christians and Jews. There is a fair representation of former military persons, but not a majority. Former local law enforcement and former federal agents are also part of the group. There is a much higher percentage of the group who hold concealed weapon permits than would be found in the general population. There is typically a lot of firepower in that room that goes undetected. Lastly, and very importantly, this group is usually 100% sober when the issues are discussed. It is not crazy bar talk. It is heartfelt and for some it almost becomes manic in terms of its sincerity. To an unsettling degree, many of those colleagues have clearly been affected by most of the leading indicators of extremism discussed above. This is especially true of those who believe that the current U.S. government does not govern. There is a thirst for change, almost any change. The desire to achieve groupthink and quash moderation is not apparent in all of them. However, those leading indicators are apparent enough that when mixed with the visceral fears of the day can cause a rationalization of extreme behaviors. These men are not right-wing militiamen hiding up in the mountains waiting for an excuse to strike. They are the fathers, brothers, sons, husbands, and friends who represent a wide and very average swath of the American fabric. Their commonness is actually what makes their thinking sub-representative. These are indeed words felt from the heartland. So what are they actually saying? It is not a true consensus. It is just heard with enough frequency that its potential virulence must be concerning. Those who are the loudest have never served. Those same persons are either aged out or have disqualifying health issues. Therefore, it is unlikely that they will ever serve in the future either. They may be the loudest, but they are hardly a sole voice out in the wilderness. They get enough nodding of heads and similar comments to support what others might consider rants. To be more succinct, these could be perceived as sincerely felt rants bordering on genocidal. Were the Munich beer halls so different? The 21st Century Crusade The prevailing thought among this salon of common men is that full-out world war against all of Islam is no longer an option, but an imperative for survival. It is not that they seek worldwide war, nor war with all Muslims, only that it is the inevitable outcome of the putative engagement with Islam required by the Christian West in response to the current level of jihadist terror throughout the world. They believe, and not so outlandishly, that jihadists only respect overwhelming power 
and such power must be brought to bear by Western and primarily Christian militaries. They also believe that short of Allied support, the U.S. alone should project the maximum unrestrained power at its disposal to broadly engage Islam in a form of multilateral holy war. They reject out of hand the long-term efficacy of limited response and surgical military operations. They propose large-scale army operations and rules of engagement not unlike World War II. Mass numbers of boots on the ground is the cornerstone of the argument. Clearly, this thinking leads to further extremism. Where to strike, how to strike, when to strike, they all remain open questions in the discussion. However, other points do not remain so vague. Maximum urban damage, acceptance of mass civilian collateral damage, no occupation forces, no nation building, no infrastructure rebuilding aid, multiple fronts over time, an infliction of the greatest psychological damage to the greatest number of Muslims. These have all been stated as inevitable objectives of the inevitable engagement. In addition, the cohort members who take these positions firmly believe that this is not 10, 20, or 50 years down the road. They believe these threats to be imminent. They do fail to address the required buy-in of the American people to such extreme positions. However, it may only take a single 9-11 type event on U.S. soil to steal the public that has already received healthy doses of the leading indicators of extremism. The internment camps of World War II must come to mind. Amorality is not a stranger in the U.S. when the threat is perceived to be real. One of my colleagues has given his personal assessment of a hypothetical situation. In his exceedingly chilly scenario, 20 to 30 of the self-proclaimed 400 to 600 ISIS-trained independent terrorists are deployed to the U.S. They receive logistical and financial support from U.S. Muslims with more loyalty to Islam than to Uncle Sam. He goes on to say that even many of the good ones up to now will likely switch teams. The 20 to 30 ISIS-trained terrorists form into six independent sleeper cells across the breadth of America. They lay dormant and have only minimal intercommunication between the cells. Possibly, their only real communication is a chosen date and time for a group of simultaneous terror attacks. On that day and time, six shopping malls in six major urban areas across the U.S. are bombed and 10,000 Americans are killed. Is it possible the will of the American people be polarized three times that of 9-11? How hard will it then be to get public buy-in that the threat is only getting greater and that extreme measures are required? Will the public buy into the unsavory, inevitable objectives listed above? Will those who can remember the Dresden firebombing, Hiroshima-Nagasaki nuclear bombings, Vietnam napalm and corporate bombings, and the like, stand against the moral degradation that is suggested in the hypothetical scenario? His cohort feels that it is unlikely. 
huge numbers of boots on the ground in the 21st century crusade is much more likely. Extremism to fight extremism. The question remains on what ground? Which predominantly Islamic sovereign state to attack first? What city to lay to ruins? Which civilian casualties to value the least? Which location having the most lasting impact towards the goals of the extreme measures themselves? What foreseeable downstream negative consequences to minimize? What impact on oil production and the world economies? What unforeseen consequences might emerge? How will the U.S. extremism realign world alliances? How many simultaneous fronts may be required to fight? What are the metrics to measure success? Do mass casualties translate into elimination of terrorism? Or just an incentive to ratchet it up just another notch? At what point do Islamic-leaning governments take on the responsibility to combat the rogue elements of their faith as a matter of world survival? What is the actual probability of U.S. success? In this informal discussion group, my colleagues tend not to discriminate relative to the above questions. And they are thinking one state is as good as another, just so long as the end result is achieved. They foresee not a single epic battle, but a series of battles across the Muslim world once U.S. extremism is unleashed. Their underlying thesis is that ultimately the U.S. has the military power to win. They see some alliances, but their thinking does not rely on them. Strike a devastating blow in one location and then be prepared to fight in another as the other states within the Muslim world respond? To some extent, they see it as a series of demoralizing wars by attrition, where the various states that directly or indirectly support terrorism are worn down, the jihadist martyrs being made to look more like destroyers of the faith than its most loyal vanguard. My colleague's consensus foresees a resetting of Islamic values, which makes support of terrorism much too costly. The primary question for consideration is, what algorithm has been written which takes the randomness out of the U.S. starting World War III, and how should the process be optimized? Of course, it is a rhetorical question at best. It also avoids all the ethical arguments. It seeks the ultimate wargaming solution. The problem is that it just does not exist. In 1941, Japan might have felt equally compelled by national interest imperatives to attack Pearl Harbor. They were suffering an economic stranglehold. There was an existential argument that could not be easily brushed aside, albeit Japan's East Asian imperialism that pointed to a self-inflicted root cause. As then, should the U.S. feel compelled to publicly announce its first target or as a sneak attack morally defensible in our existential dilemma with rampant terrorism? That is a question. Should the U.S. seek to mitigate civilian casualties and infrastructure damage, or should it seek to maximize both as the means towards the intended end? How much should our allies know in advance? The question of a worldwide realignment of political alliances looms large in this scenario. 
The cohort has discussed it many times. Here, there's a pretty solid consensus among the group regarding this particular consequence of U.S. extremism. Jewish members of the cohort may actually see it more clearly than the others. It pretty much eliminates the existence of the United Nations. It questions the integrity of NATO as a unified military bloc. If the European Union were to hold together, it might be the final catalyst for disunion. It leaves the power of the world in three distinct spheres of influence, the United States, China, and Russia. Of those, only Russia has felt the sting of Islamic terrorism, and then only relatively insignificantly. With a reshuffling of the deck, both Russia and China might find less taste for battling Islamic extremism than for increasing their respective worldwide hegemonies with new Islamic alliances. Iran comes to mind first as a potential Russian ally. Indonesia, with its huge Muslim population, could easily ally with China. What might happen to the southern Philippine Islands where Islamic terrorism is not new? Would they secede in favor of a Chinese alliance? How threatened would Japan feel? In which direction would nuclear weapons capable Pakistan lean with China at its back door? How would that decision impact India? All the above does not point necessarily towards a three-pronged war. Russia and China might be satisfied with just picking off low-hanging fruit. However, such picking would require some form of assistance to the Islamic states to sustain the relationship. One can go through the rest of the world and attempt to foresee all the new alignments that might emerge, such as in Africa and South or Central America. Although damaged, the Western European alliances will not move towards Russia or China. They will become more isolationist in nature, but will eventually lean towards the U.S. as the existential threat of extremism menaces their societies. Terrorism in Europe will likely become worse for a period of time once the U.S. begins military operations. It becomes an all-or-nothing, zero-sum war environment. When or suffer wholesale urban terrorism ad infinitum. Israel is hardly a wild card. Alignment with the U.S. is an existential imperative. But what can be said to be a wild card is determining exactly what Israel might be willing to do to ensure its own survival. Similarly, what would the U.S. be willing to do to ensure Israel's survival? The Jewish homeland unquestionably would be the focal point of counterattack by all the Islamic states with the capacity to do so. They would also use all the weapons at their disposal. In a world recalibrating loyalties, how difficult would it be for an Islamic state to secure a nuclear weapon? The specter of a North Korea and Iran alliance is daunting. Would it justify an Israeli preemptive nuclear strike? The what and how of war. Having thus addressed the where discussed by the group, we now recap the thoughts of this salon of common men on the how. In its essence, it comes down to determining 
just how much damage the U.S. would want to inflict on any given target state. A few of my colleagues posit that there should be massive and indiscriminate damage to key cities, akin to Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Clearly, nuclear weapons are an option, but so too are airdropped precision munitions. Others posit that it should be a large conventional army force, the size of which has not been seen since World War II. Still others posit use of standoff conventional weapons, like cruise missiles or ICBMs. A small subgroup of the whole also posits that a tit-for-tat terror campaign of our own might be optimum. Strike and counter-strike, not unlike the Israeli model and work of the Mossad. However, the common thread among the how option discussions is the damage factor. Regardless of method, in each case the group wants the target city to be leveled and its infrastructure eliminated for decades to come. As mentioned earlier, these men do not want to see any type of post-strike aid to the target state for the purpose of rebuilding. The effects must be long-lasting. Of course, such a policy begs the question of Russia and China, or members of their respective spheres of influence, stepping in to fill the void. My colleagues foresee no post-strike occupation force. The strike is not to capture territory or relieve a suffering populace. It is to inflict maximum pain. As the SEALs say, it is a shoot-and-scoot environment. Quick, hard, and dirty, and on to the next target, of which there are likely to be many before the first one even cools off. It might be somewhat trite to say when discussing extreme U.S. actions, but accurate nevertheless. Of course, all the how options would ultimately be best supported by majority public buy-in domestically in America and eventually throughout the world. The latter should not be minimized. The U.S. certainly could risk international condemnation from those who do not or choose not to see the balance between threat and solution. In a worst-case scenario, the perceived cure could be more harmful to Americans than the present terrorist threat if the U.S. were to become ostracized and vilified throughout the world. From here, the thinking of my colleagues becomes pretty open-ended and much more apocalyptic in nature. If we do nothing, and terrorism continues domestically and within the homelands of our allies, what is the future to hold for the world? Should it just be accepted as the new reality that jihadi terror cannot be stopped and that an ongoing siege upon Christianity for generations to come is indeed the new world order? It doesn't take long for the discussion to return to the 21st century crusade required to crush the threat. These 10 to 12 men who devote much of their conversation to jihadi terror feel strongly in the righteousness of the U.S. bringing to bear 100% of its military capabilities over the relatively short term. In the scenario, our government will let the international political chips fall where they may. It is clearly a dangerous line of thinking that holds the emergence of popular U.S. extreme thought in stark relief. Less and less of extremism is considered morally offensive 
as each new jihadi bomb goes off. Many in the cohort group recognize the infeasible nature of most of their thinking relative to the present political climate in the United States. It pushes them further and further to the right in terms of which political candidates they are willing to support. Even there, they acknowledge that the most aggressive hawks likely have no stomach for what must be done. It slows down their perceived timeline a bit, but it does not change their long-term vision. The existential imperative will eventually shift the political landscape in favor of a massive and extreme response is their logic. The right president, the right Congress, the right catalyst, and the right thinking. Sooner or later, it would be possible for all the pieces to be in place. They see strange bedfellows as well, whereby today's moderates begin to adopt more extreme rationalizations. They also see many of today's moral objectionists as being less so as the real politic of the day becomes more bellicose. The fringe becoming the middle, and that middle then subsuming the new fringe. There will be less left and right polarization when faced with a transcending threat. Was it so much different in 1930s Berlin? In the discussions, my colleagues seem to be significantly averse to the use of nuclear weapons to accomplish the goals they feel are so compelling. The loose consensus seems to be that the massive damage they foresee can be accomplished with conventional weapons and armies without risking a worldwide conflagration that could threaten the human race. When it comes to extreme thinking, that is about the only place where they actually draw a gray line. They don't dismiss the option out of hand. They just do not see it as the optimum course of action. Clearly, a nuclear strike would be quick and put the least number of American souls at risk, at least at first. However, with it would come the dire risk of unknown consequences. There are the known and suspected nuclear states. When each takes its respective safeties off and places its finger on the trigger, at whom will it be aiming? If it is perceived throughout the world that a true global war has begun, just how much restraint might be seen? Few may recall how the various European defense pacts of the time went on autopilot in June 1914. Offensive war stances were taken by states with virtually no detailed knowledge or intelligence. Troop trains rolled without regard for the broad implications. The war plans came out of the safes and were activated, solely because they were there for that reason. With that history in mind, how many western cities would ultimately no longer exist along with those initially targeted by the United States? When the smoke and fallout clear, will the earth even be inhabitable? It is these type of considerations that cause the discussion group to lean towards conventional military domination. This is the thinking that loops back to boots on the ground, virtually every time the hows are discussed. The when question then arises. At what point are extreme measures in balance with the threat, at least through American eyes? At least half of the discussion members would be ready to march today. Of course, they themselves would not be doing the marching, which makes it a convenient position to take. 
A majority of the group subscribes to the overall methods, but holds back in defining a certain date for a devastating strike. For them, the balance has not yet been reached for such extreme actions and indeterminable results. To a man, they believe that the tipping point is close enough to be seen. They feel that we are just not quite there yet. Most believe that anything that even approaches the shopping mall scenario described above will provide the moral justification. For them, it is just an inevitable wait. Nobody in the group believes that the U.S. can be held in check through a multi-generational existential threat. However, a key component of the win decision is the U.S. leadership in place at the time and the willingness of the American people to actually take extreme military measures that had not been seen in any real way since 1945. If not a popular majority, how big a minority must subscribe before a U.S. leader would move forward? The same question might be asked of Congress, the executive branch, or the Joint Chiefs of Staff. There will never be uniformity of opinion. It is only a question of how much dissent can be ignored. In summary, do the weekly pontifications of a group of common men regarding extreme actions prove the thesis of this essay? Hardly. What has been relayed here is anecdotal at best. However, the purpose has been to only identify potential and not predict actual occurrences. This essay attempts to examine plausibility more than probability. It winds through historical, geopolitical, and religious realities and attempts to show how each has impacted the human susceptibility to fear during different historical eras and what extreme acts have come from them over time. Americans are not unique or immune. Clearly, there is some degree of distinctive character displayed by American society. However, in the end, we are only too human. The ultimate answer to the existential threat is the same for all animals. It is hardwired. It is the fight or flight instinct. Broadly speaking, we are unable to respond any differently than our fellow humans around the world have responded throughout history when faced with similar existential threats. Once the fight option has been chosen, it has less to do with moral rationalization than with degree. To think that Americans have some hyper-acuity that never leads them away from the moral high ground is an exercise in self-deception. So can America at some point rationalize Islamic genocide, even if only at low levels? Can it rationalize entering into the 21st century crusade? Can it rationalize massive non-combatant deaths as collateral damage? Can it rationalize tempting the unforeseen consequences of a new world war? Can it rationalize the possibility of nuclear conflagration? Can it rationalize the potential of a globe made inhabitable? Can it rationalize sweeping economic dislocations to itself and its allies? This list is not exhaustive, only indicative. The answer to all these questions must be based on how America perceives the threat on any given day. The existential threat tipping point is actually a moving target. The answer must also be based 
on how the American society has reacted to the pressures of groupthink and stifling of moderation? The answer is unequivocally yes. Americans can rationalize all the things above and fully support the most extreme actions if certain dynamics play out. They are no different than all the humans who have come before them. In summary, primal fears have been the basis for many historical events throughout the world. Throughout time, the commonality has been an overwhelming feeling of disenfranchisement and helplessness, which has then led to extremism of various sorts to quell those fears when the existing socio-political-economic defense structures have been perceived as inadequate. A tacitly morally justified and government-sanctioned form of extremism is not only possible, but likely probable in the United States in the not-so-distant future. April 20, 2016